Yeah, if it's just a picture of my mouth flapping in the wind. Classic flapper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said that. It just sounded funny in my head. <laughs> like, no context. <laughs> we'll use that as the um, as part of the trailer for this episode. Yeah, fuck just it. A- <laughs> <laughs> Alex- Alexandra Campbell, classic flapper. Classic flapper. Classic <laughs> I mean, I'd love to say that there was some sort of backstory because we've known each other for a disgustingly long long time now and um, it's true yeah there's, there's nothing there that's not even a thing not even an in joke like. not even an in joke maybe from today though maybe from, <laughs> from now on from today you'll be known for your flaps <laughs> so glad to have witnessed this special moment between friends there was something in the Ref. Not. Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. Today we're talking with Dr. Emma Butcher, BBC New Generation thinker and Bronte babe. Emma is a lecturer in literature and cultural heritage at Edge Hill University and her first monograph, The Brontes and War, was published earlier this year and she's currently working on her second book, Children in the Age of Modern War. How are you? What have you been up to? How's Edge Hill? Edge Hill's brilliant. Like, I really, yeah, really enjoying it. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work. A lot of work, but work that I really like. So I get to teach. I'm doing loads of stuff with like children's literature and romanticism and all this great stuff. And the students are amazing as well. Like they make it. So loving it. Doing a lot of teaching online as well, which is posing its own problems. But all the students are just so nice and supportive. And I've noticed how distinctly uncool I am compared to everyone <laughs> else. Like, I keep being like, I said something like fabbly doodly the other day when a student like uploaded. So I was like fabbly doodly and I was like oh no but then I realized I was recording my seminar and I was just like oh this is I'm gonna be a meme someone's gonna make me a meme that is honestly my biggest fear about like uploading pre-recorded like lectures and stuff is it gonna turn me into a gif yeah at one point (laughs) it's just gonna happen like it's just I try and stop myself and then I'm perpetually just a disappointment to myself (laughs) after I finish I just like sit there and I go Oh, Emma, not again. <laughs> again. <laughs> what I love is that the recording software that we have at Glasgow is it's really clunky, so you can record your face and then the screen at the same time. But then when you edit it, there's no like nuance to it. You can't like slip things together. So when I'm like reading things out and I inevitably say to my fuck, I've got no fucking idea what I'm saying next. Oh, here we go. Okay, this is it. I then have to go back in and edit out that moment where I'm just like talking to myself and giving myself a shit pep talk. And then what happens is my, my face will go from like, and that's something really interesting about black poetic. <laughs> and then my face will pop up on a different area of the screen be like so as this particularly cool author says anytime that my students see like something jerking around it's because i've been swearing at myself <laughs> I, I kind of have resigned myself to being some sort of a meme in fact i, I you know i don't aspire to because that, that would be too like enthusiastic <laughs> and you know that sounds a bit desperate but like i've already accepted that my pedagogy is a pedagogy of hey kids like <laughs> Hey! Hey! <laughs> like, I'm going to mention TikTok and you're going to think I'm so cool. I talk about TikTok all the time with my students. I'm literally just like, is anyone familiar with like cottagecore? Who likes cottagecore? <laughs> Dorothy Wordsworth, so cottagecore. And they're all looking at me just like, 
why are you stalking like my life like what about if we're on tiktok and there's me just sat in bed the lecture at, like 11 p.m like <laughs> that's me not posting any content but just being like hey, hey, i'm down with the kids there's like loads going round about like putting put into breakout rooms and like just students ripping into it on tiktok and every time i say oh breakout rooms i like make some sort of reference to tiktok and they're all just like no they just rip it. They're just like, things like, oh, tutor says we go into breakout rooms and then they leave. I love the old breakout rooms, but I'm also doing this thing where I'm really like cringe on them as well. So they go into their rooms and everything's so like immediate, isn't it? So they go into them and then suddenly I do this thing where it's like, I'm group bombing you. And I like come in, I'm like, group bomb. <laughs> and they're just like, uh. Fiddly diddly. <laughs> like fucking Ned Flanders here. <laughs> Hadley ho. <laughs> Seminar Reno's. I can't even say that. <laughs> I'm going to cut it though so it sounds like I said it and it was funny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. You guys just carry on then. I'll see you in the main room. I always just say, yeah, so if you see me floating about and I don't say anything, it's because you're fine. So I just kind of float in there. I don't don't announce my presence because I'm like, is that weirder? Is it weirder to just kind of appear and disappear? I don't know. I know, I make a big, I mean, I don't necessarily, if they're in the middle of conversation, I normally just do the wave really, really extravagantly and then they're all just like, fuck's sake. (laughs) Or you're like, you come in and you're like, <laughs> you know what? I should I should bring the kazoo into my practice. Why do we have a kazoo? Well, Louise, well, would you like to take it away? We like to curate a jingle for our guests, which is played on the very academic kazoo. So we'd like you to work out what it is, a bit of a name that tune. Why is it relevant to okay. you and to your practice? And I usually laugh through it. So if you get these, like, <laughs> like that's just because I'm laughing. <laughs> Louise, <laughs> <laughs> that was fucking awful. I'm not gonna lie. I can't remember the fucking one tune. Of many songs. That could be anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, why did I start at the beginning of the song? Like, yeah, and no then one knows the beginning. Do the chorus, you fucking idiot. Great, great choice. You see that it was an easy fit, that one. Because? Well. Explain. Sorry, I've been marking all day. Please explain. I'm a military historian of the Napoleonic Wars, so Waterloo fits perfectly. Brave. I've never come on a podcast and been serenaded with a kazoo before. You're welcome. It's the true experience of law my praxis. It makes me fear what's to come. <laughs> Formatting according to this journal's referencing conventions. So it's been a very long day. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you've written a lot of books, Emma. Say something about them. (laughs) So professional. I've written a book. That's great. It's more than I've done. In terms of the second book, that is very unwritten. I sound a lot better in the introduction than I feel within myself and actually am. The Brontes and War was great. So I worked on my PhD, the idea that the Brontes were really important, like war commentators when they were kids and how they used a lot of their youthful writings to explore elements of military masculinity and previously unknown kind of mental sufferings of war. So what we'd call war trauma, but then had a bewildering kind of array of 
weird labels like Cannonball Wind and Nostalgia and all sorts of things that they just picked up on in society. So that was really fun to do. And I got to uh, use the Bronte Parsonage loads. And then I kind of got the book out pretty quickly because I got completely fed up with it. So I just rushed it out and my family member was reading it and noticed that there was loads of typos in it. So, I mean, that's great. And I'm never going to read it. So just going to leave that, posit that. Just do what Louise does and claim it's praxis. It's fine. I mean, well, my praxis. I do want to go back to one thing you just said, though. What is cannonball wind? Cannonball wind is this weird thing where basically people think that you kind of caught fright from a passing cannonball. So it would be like cannon fire, basically a mental state. This is not what I thought it was going to be. Cannonball wind. It just sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, I thought it's going to be more gastric, if I'm honest. Yeah, I, I thought it was going to be cannonball <laughs> to the stomach, like that the Ancient Simpsons episode. I feel like it would be like a really good way to talk about your farts. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, why is this not about the Brontes farting? Why? Is that not what the book's content is about, Emma? I mean, <laughs> maybe that's my new calling to write some sort of like, I mean, I'm just going completely for it to erotic farting Bronte fan fiction is probably my calling, to be honest. Oh my God, yes. I mean, it's very Wendy in Wuthering Heights. <laughs> Wuthering. Wuthering arseholes. Yeah. You're welcome. You can, you can take that one. Uh, I will. I mean, if all else fails, I do think there is a lot of merit in the idea of going away and writing erotic fan fiction I, f- I feel like that might be my second calling I probably make a lot more money than I do now people make so much money we have a friend who um, she suffers from like really bad migraines so she just bought what's that software Dragon that's like the, the text to voice mm. software and she just lies in bed and just narrates erotic porn into her Dragon software and sells I it I hope that they wear like a bright pink silk dress with pearls and they're on a chalange or whatever they only pose with their wrists posed delicately upon their forehead (laughs) it's all period bodice rippers and corset bursters or whatever you want to call that kind of genre she pays a rent that sounds great it's a word for it you just said it pseudonym non de plume me I mean I'll just be the butch really because that's probably super masculine isn't it just by butch (laughs) we know what you write exactly it sounds so like I don't know sounds so muscular I've thought about this because obviously mine is Ginger Labia Smythe. <laughs> that is that is strong. That's very Sarah Waters, that is. Yeah, I figure that like, you know, labia could definitely be like one of those things, you know, when particularly in the 19th century, they like, there was a word that they thought was great, so they just called them that mm-hmm. name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like people called like Candida. Yes, <laughs> well, choices. And well, obviously <laughs> Ginger. Alex, have you thought about this? I haven't. I think the closest one that I've come to is that kind of the classic, like what's your porn star name or something, which is like, the name of your dead dog and the first like road you lived on which would be Tinkerbell Newnham Ooh, that is really quite sensual that is Nancy New Nancy New Nancy New Road that sounds a little bit like kind of reinventing Oliver Twist it sounds a bit like a sort of neo Victorian imagining yeah it does it's a bit like or like really shit Nancy Drew like oh yeah like Tesco Value, Nancy Drew. <laughs> like it would be. It'd be one of those DVDs you get in Tesco, you know, with the like Titanic, the legend goes on. Shout out to that. <laughs> Monday, Monday, Monday. Must be funny. When you're the vice chancellor of a university. I think we'll move quickly into a section we're calling sure. Knowing Me, Knowing You. Uh-huh. So we like to ask our guests to tell us a boring fact about themselves. Um, I really like drinking gravy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mm -hmm. Do you just like kind of make a cup of it? Like just a cup of gravy. I don't have tea or coffee, just gravy. What, like first thing, 9 a.m.? Yeah. Fuck. That is savage, Emma. Like boring or not, but I feel like it's quite mundane, but there's nothing like a cup of great choice. I feel quite disturbed. <laughs> it's, just, it's not one of those like beef teas, right? Like no, what they call no, like the Oxo no, beef. No, no, it's like proper like... The real deal. Like how do you make it? Tell me your recipe. I need to know more. Um, just Dough. Just bisto. Just a spoonful straight into the mouth and then pour the hot water in. Yeah, and just have a cup of gravy. I'm really confused. But is it like, you know, how bisto has like different like meat flavors? Oh, yeah. Do you mm. shake it up? Do yeah, you have yeah, yeah, you know how people have like herbal teas? Like, do you have like different? Yeah, it'll be beef one week, then when that runs out, chicken. It'll either be that or like large quantities of milk. I drink a lot of milk. But like not together, right? Please God. I have I have drank milk after the gravy, but never together. And then you got a little bit of cannonball wind afterwards, is that <laughs> I don't know whether you're being sarcastic or not. I'm not. <laughs> I will get my partner, my friends to back me up on this. I'm known for my gravy drinking. Right. I mean definitely this is why I love this question. Because like and when would anyone ever admit to this otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> like i just thought what's really just mundane gravy gravy's really mundane not at 9 a.m gravy is <laughs> yeah i mean i've n- been known oh, to so think old. four cups of gravy before 11 four that's a fucking sunday roast emma i really <laughs> love gravy i really love it <laughs> i'm really really confused i love this The next section is about getting sexy and asking for your Tinder bio, but I'm, I don't feel very sensual after talking about gravy. I mean, do you? I mean, why can you not combine the, the great meatiness of gravy along with the body? Like, why is that not sexy? I, it's a perfect segue. Everything's meaty. Meaty. Good. Yes. Okay, well... What is your academic Tinder bio then? It, if it doesn't have meaty in it, I will be disappointed. It would be something like Dr. Butcher, academic or serial killer. Swipe right to find out. <laughs> All the danger. And then just had a full stop meaty question mark <laughs> question mark and a little like emoji of a knife let's meet up oh oh, oh. this is getting very sweeney todd oh. i like yeah, it very sweeney todd that's the thing like i feel like it was too like when people do their halloween names on twitter i almost added like a little knife to the end of my name then i was like i no, i'm not not gonna do that that's that's a bit weird rather than being like spooky name that's just more i'm aligning myself with murder yeah or you know the great art of butchery 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 it's a a very valuable trade it was a really like terrible time when i became dr butcher though because it was just two conflicting professions really that just don't really make a lot of sense together so at least you don't actually treat people that's you know this is tmi but i don't care so i'm gonna say it on the podcast anyway (laughs) so so I had to go to the gynecologist last week. Flaps. <laughs> Flaps. And uh, <laughs> I mean, basically. They're too big. <laughs> just like, Whoa, the machine, it's stuck. Sorry, uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> but anyway, so it was really nice. And obviously, because I have like massive health anxiety, I was hyperventilating because obviously. And I mean, the solution was welcome to your 30s. Like that was the reason I was there. <laughs> he like saw that I had doctor in front of my name because obviously I use it all the time because I'm a dick. And he was like, you're a real doctor then. Just before like examining my vagina, I was just like, you know how to talk to a lady. Like, 
gynecologist <laughs> called me a real doctor and got right in there. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If people refer to me as doctor, it's quite erotic. I mean, but should a gynecologist really talk to you before? Like, I feel like anything is going to be slightly <laughs> weird. Like, there's no, there's no conversation which is even slightly okay. Could you imagine just like, wow, great about the election. Whoop. <laughs> you say there's no small talk, but this is like when we we're just chatting about symptoms. But then they got someone in to just make sure that he wasn't doing anything untoward, like before they put the machine in, because it was like a ultrasound. Mm. And she was just chatting to me about Beechgrove Garden, which is a gardening show in Scotland. Like, so, yeah. Very flowery garden chat for your lady garden. Lovely. That's see what a nice gentle conversation that was. I honestly think like health assistants and nurses, like they they are, they are so good at coming up with this kind of like conversation stuff like when I had to have my lip surgery earlier in the year I mean it was a bit frustrating because they literally had their hands in my mouth and the assistant was just sort of like what are you up to this weekend I was like oh <laughs> but I did feel very at ease about them like carving into my face so you know shout out to that nurse Fiona I mean I don't know mine you know they were fiddling with down there and I still don't know her name so oh well. <laughs> I don't want to talk if it makes you feel sad and I understand You've come to shake my hand I apologize If it makes you feel bad Seeing me so tense No self-confidence Due to chronic levels of imposter syndrome But I mean, to get back to it, the question is When it comes to writing war, does the winner indeed take it all <laughs> that was done in such a way which, sorry that really tickled my pickle <laughs> no well yes the winner does take it all because because they win the war but also mm-hmm. they just win really everyone anyone who's really gunning for war really wins don't they because you know that's where you hear that's where all the kind of the high up generals that's who you usually hear from all of the kind of victors because isn't war war history written on the side of the victors and this is why it's important i guess i'm what i'm doing and others that are doing to try and say turn that to a no so other victims and also other people involved in it can actually kind of get a look in somewhere create some sort of parallel military history that's not filled with old white dudes because that's what we want really yeah and obviously i'm sure there's a lot of old white dudes in military history there's so many brilliant like military historians who are across like all genders you know that are just brilliant the predominancy isn't it predominancy is that even a word the pre- sure. is predominancy is mainly old white <laughs> men still and that's just that's the way that i think it would take a couple of kind of generations yeah so what we need is the young white children young white children and then i had the kind of moment in my head where i was like i mainly study white children i'm trying to be more global but it's so hard right you know to find because everything's in different languages and also mm. so many histories are lost and i'm just trying to be better i'm trying to do better i like how i'm preaching about history being an old white guy kind of thing and it's like actually the histories that are easier to find are the kind of white histories and Mm -hmm. finding it so hard especially during lockdown and covid because Mm. i was going to travel try and go to india and look at kind of some archives there and really try and actually find some new 
global voices, but it's so hard getting access to these things. And then also I'm so bad at languages as well that I cannot, you know, I wish that I was bilingual. I wish that I had other languages under my belt. It's a real issue for archive access at the moment, but because I know that you work quite a lot with museums. Yeah. Do you work in, in sort of a more sort of public engagement context with museums or is it like a serious part of like as you're saying like extending this kind of like child archive or global voices for sure it's kind of both well i worked with the bronte parsonage loads just by well not accident but it just so happened i lived locally and they were local and i just ended up doing lots of stuff with them and i like to do stuff with kind of museums and main public engagement is a great way of reaching people through museums because mm. that's a it's a what a collective space isn't it where everyone can enjoy it but in terms of global reach yeah that is a massive part and i wanted to travel a lot and the good thing about the grant i was on before i got this new job at edge hill is that i had money to actually do that and go and travel but then covid happened and it was very difficult to do that but it's really hard because like for example a lot of archives in say india it's like a needle in a haystack there's problems of kind of categorization and you need to just go and find things so you can't just email a librarian there and say or an archivist and say hey are you got anything relating to children and war you know because like all academic getting the brilliant librarians and archivists to do our job for us and then say we've discovered this taking the credit it takes that actual physical going there and physically trying to do that because they're just like well Probably, but the actual amount of time it's going to take go through these uncatalogued documents is going to be so much. So it's really hard because... I'm trying my best to kind of do things. And so I have started writing this new book and I'm starting to try and write different experiences in, but it's really hard to capture an authentic child's voice, which is what I try and do as much as I can to try and find some kind of authenticity. I mean, authenticity is the wrong word because everything's going to be mediated through loads of different platforms, but try and find something that relates to children's experiences that's a little bit more authentic than this adult dialogue. So hard. So what kind of materials do you normally uncover then in these archives? Because, I mean, obviously your first book was all about the Brontes and their, I mean, both their fictional writings and I guess their personal reflections as well, like as a mixture of mediums or... Yes. Letters or? Well, the Brontes, they didn't really write about war outside their fantasy world, but it's definitely stuff that they lifted. Like they either copied from texts that they read or they made up their own kind of conclusions, but wrote them in their fantasy world. So they'd write like journal entries and, and bits and bobs, but it was very much kind of like they just created their own saga, their own kingdom. And then they interacted with one another in their own and their own personal thoughts and feelings within that world. Whereas the stuff mm. I'm looking at now is a mixture thing. So I initially wanted to just find children's voices and then I realised that was way too hard. So I look at like arts, also literature as well. Well, I'm trained in literature, not history. So I'm using things <laughs> like Les Mis or War and Peace and all of these great texts that talk about children in war in some aspect. But also trying to find just children's letters and ephemera in the archives so places like the national army museum and the british library india archives and national maritime museum they're all been great and they're great places to to find content which i have found but again it's been limited really the amount that i can mm. do so it's also trying to kind of work out what material i can kind of get online which is just harder isn't it but you know woe is me we're all going through this at the moment aren't we where you know we're basically just trying to work in difficult circumstances so you can read about the cultural impact of this in the bronte siblings juvenilia
When we're talking about children's writing, isn't it just a bit shit sometimes? So bad. That sounded really confrontational, but I'm just like, if it's really shit, what can it show you? Is, is there merit in looking at what they're picking up because it's like developmental stuff, like it's early? Is there merit in thinking about what they were choosing to reflect on because they weren't fully formed and they didn't have like maybe a critical capacity? So like some children's writing is rubbish. <laughs> I don't know, daddy, I miss you. My cousin bought me a sword. But, you know, I mean, it's not a work of genius, but what it shows is what children are being exposed to, whether they're being exposed to military content, what their levels of kind of patriotism, what's going on in the domestic family unit. So that's interesting in itself. But also kids then, you know, are re- they're reading like crazy things. So their writing is a lot better, a lot earlier. So you're reading like really nuanced stuff from like 10 and 11 year olds that are actually writing and constructing quite well thought out letters. Because I think that in terms of certainly the Brontes were able to write really well by the time they were like 10. So by at 10, they read what was Scott's eighth volume biography of the life of Napoleon. Oh, God, no. Thank you. Not even now. It makes me think a lot about children's consumption because in the past, certainly not obviously working class children, but well-off children could have a really good reading age really early on. Whereas now there's kind of a sense, isn't there, that children's books are curated for children. Mm. So it's like we're giving children their age range book and progressing them, but there's no sense of, okay, so just find something and kids kind of potting around thinking, oh, look, I found this Dickens and then reading it because there's no sense of children's literature as a kind of commodity until much later, even though it's a bit about, it's not like it is now. Yeah, like it's almost like a restriction. It's sort of like, no, 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 not not right now, not for you, not today. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's great kids' books. Most of them are about like pants and stuff like that, aren't they? Like, it was like, what is it, Captain Underpants? <laughs> like Sisterhood of the Travelling like, Pants, that was pants. one. Yeah. Not a lot of pants. Not a lot of pants. Yeah. Not a pants. I think um, David Williams is awful for like, he does like, so many kids' books, but he really plays into stereotypes. And you're like, yeah. this is not okay. I don't like his books. I think that they're really quite... like Kids' books can be crude, right? Because kids love mm-hmm. poo and, and buying yeah. and all the rest of it. Classic. And Cannonball wins. And cannonball yeah. win. <laughs> it says us that have been sniggering about Bronte flatulence. <laughs> so <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> but like, while I was like you say, it's totally stereotypical. It's a bit like, ugh. What what view are you trying to give to kids? Enforces structures of heteronormativity. Going back to the work that you do with archives and museums, I'm trying to think about exhibitions I've seen about like childhood or just children in those kind of contexts. Is there a stereotype of the child at war within these spaces? And is that something that your work is kind of pushing back against in some ways? Yeah, I think there's a general idea of child as victim. Child needs to be protected. And I think that's come out of like romantic, so romanticism notions of childhood and the idea that the child should be a amongst nature, uncorrupted. And then throughout the 19th, 20th century, more laws are passed to protect children, right? So there's this kind of sense that they're in this sacred space. Whereas actually, what I've noticed is that children are always the victim of war. There's nothing that kind of goes against that, but it's not in juxtaposition to agency, that children can have agency within limited frameworks, be that the domestic military family, be that as a soldier or something like that. It's it's more nuanced than that. It's more nuanced than either their kind of innocent or corrupted. And I just think that's what I'm trying to kind of bring out through my work is a sense of a parallel military history where we consider the child to be what they are. They they are always a victim. And I think I've put in my introduction that doesn't 
take away the fact that children should not be exposed to war. Like it's a sad tragedy when any child has to go through such a horrible thing or anybody has to go through such a horrible thing. But what we can see is that within certain spaces, children do exercise some form of power or some form of agency, I suppose, within that is there a risk then that, you know, if the child isn't in the war sort of physically, if it is a war sort of away from home, that they could be more susceptible to sort of propaganda and pro-war material? Does that come with it or is there a nuance there? Sometimes. So a lot of it is going to be imitation, but that's interesting in itself because you're finding that what's the kind of like main ideas circulating in society and how children are picking up on that, emulating that and then going forward in their life from that. I think that's quite important. And it says a lot about the state of a nation at a time. But what we're also finding is moments of thought. So I'm thinking specifically in terms of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Marjorie Fleming, the great Scottish child writer who died at the age of eight in the Napoleonic Wars, but also already Walter Scott was like, wow, you're a genius. The Brontes, again, they're creating protests, epiphanic moments or moments of questioning in their writings, which is just so interesting because they are dismantling those kind of societal structures and they are navigating the discourse and being able to find moments of clarity and thought and critique within them. So I'm really enjoying that because it does surprise me sometimes. But there are a lot of stuff, if you do look at kind of letters of children, it can emulate the father, the mother's views. And But there are moments of, I think, of clarity, certainly in regard to thinking about the violence of war which I think is interesting and in exceptional circumstances you get much more nuanced account with the Brontes that consider like war trauma in an age where again like I said there's no discourse to really say what it is but nothing's as great as the Brontes yet that's the thing like I've got to broaden it out gonna get loads of them they're all gonna come out of the woodwork and it's like no the Brontes the title of the book is the Brontes and war what would a book about the Brontes at war Mm. be about like probably like what would they do like with each other against the shittest one you could have loads of great chapters couldn't you like sibling rivalry Mm -hmm. you could have one of toxic masculinity and like oh yeah fucking branwell and a sense of like conquering women at war with women and that would be really interesting stuff like that or at war with the publishing industry there could be loads of stuff at war with herself because there's all that stuff with emily bronte and her the various rumors about her mental health and things It'd just be a chapter called like anne's the worst no it's <laughs> 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 like, oh, Anne. Anne. Like, i hate anne oh no <laughs> i just honestly i literally i don't know i just i I'm sorry, but I'm literally the bad guy of the Brontes, right? Because I'm like, oh, hey, look at these, look what these three women did. But let's bring in the brother. I am the worst. Awful. (laughs) Awful. I had a pal who felt a real affinity to Anne Bronte because, like, (laughs) she was really drunk and, like, wandering around Glasgow and she, like, stopped and there was, like, Anne Bronte in the window and she was hammered and she just looked at it and she was like, I'm such an Anne. Anne is so underrated. Why does no one rate me? And then she cried. (laughs) I just fucking love that story. (laughs) I'm such an Anne. I love that so much. (laughs) No one rates me. No one likes me. (laughs) It's fucking brilliant. But if you had to choose a Bronte sister, because you can kind of see those stereotypes almost playing out archetypes. Anne's the underrated one. Who would you most identify with? The brother. (laughs) I think, I mean, I love Emily the most, but I'd probably most identify with Charlotte because bossy, small. 
just wants to get things done. She did drink a lot of gravy, it's true. You know, Charlotte's a bit... I don't really like Charlotte, really, as a person. Don't know what that says Horrible. about my reflections on myself, but... Yeah, wow. <laughs> I think in terms of Charlotte's identity as the leader, I suppose, mm. of pushing forward, like, I'm just like, yes, her leadership. But I aspire mm. to be Emily. Yeah, I, everyone wants to be Emily. Like, I would love to think that I was Emily, but... You're an Anne. I think rather than being a Charlotte, I think I'm an Anne. <laughs> like, I really do. That's, Fuck that's me. That's okay. Like, Anne and Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we were talking about Little Women when we were doing the musical, and this is whole thing. It's like everyone wants to be Jewel, but then I realised that I'm a fucking Amy. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell, I'm Amy. Oh. Awful. Please, AHRC. The thing we haven't talked about yet is how you managed to get the BBC to take a chance on you. <laughs> take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. Oh, take a chance it take was a chance. really bizarre. I think a lot of things happened by accident in the sense that I literally was at the Bronte Parsonage one day showing my parents around for the first time and a TV crew happened to be there that day who were shooting Being the Brontes, which was the big Easter documentary on the Brontes and the lead curator Anne Dinsdale she basically said oh Emma's an expert on the juvenilia and she's here today can you just give the crew some answers and the crew just chatted to me about some stuff that the questions that they had then they asked me to be on the show randomly so it's complete fluke that that happened and I think that was one of the things in the application because before in terms of the BBC I didn't even get a look in like my, my first application was just thrown in the bin so I put that in my application the forefront and I got through to the rounds and then I think I just I thought I'd blown it quite quickly so I kind of just started being more me and, and everyone was just you know it's like what do you listen to or what do you watch on TV and everyone was being quite nuanced with thing and I was just like first dates like you know <laughs> first dates and I ended up trying to calm my nerves as well by just being me and I think that there was a lot of things that day that kind of went in my favour I think that I was really loved my topic I was doing so when we did the pitch I really enjoyed it and the tag team debate I was tagged at the right time when I had an answer so I'd like to say that I just suppose the biggest takeaway things is that a lot of that I felt was fluke but obviously they like just me being me I think that's the main thing is that just obviously you don't want to be to you in the sense you don't want to be, you know, just talking about farts all day. Yeah, or discussing your visit to the gynecologist. Maybe I won't talk about that if I get through. <laughs> that you'd like try and just be enthusiastic about what you're doing mm. and just... I suppose bringing that passion as well that like I want to always as much as I can try and make my research apply to everyone and make everyone feel like they can access it and enjoy it and that's kind of what if you want to do that you've kind of already got that in the bag rather than feel like it's a tick box you know if you genuinely want to do that then that's great they'll see that. I get so frustrated with academics who turn their nose up at public engagement things, like sort of turn their nose up at like sort of public historians. Like I just think that it's so ridiculous because anyone who's in academia can write something really dense and ridiculous. But I, I think it's a, a different skill to use your research in a way that's for good and accessible. It's also just really nice to hear about people who also watch a fuck ton of shit TV. Like, oh god, yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I get to the end of the day, and my brain is so. T- 
tired from like pretending to be knowledgeable about several thousand different things that I just want to sit down and watch Selling Sunset. Um, I just want to watch terrible people buy houses that I will never be able to afford. Like that's just what I want in my life. I just honestly, the last thing I want to do at the end of the day is go to a Victorian organ recital. All I want to do <laughs> is just watch like Emily in Paris and just hate it. Selling Sunset, absolutely. I was 100% team Chriselle, then she kind of annoyed me a bit on Dancing with Stars. So uh, I didn't watch the crossover episode. I enjoyed just watching Carol Baskin on Dancing with Stars. Do you remember the beginning of the lockdown when everyone was obsessed with Tiger, Tiger, Tiger King? Tiger King was 12 years ago, Louise. Get over it. Literally 12 years ago. And she's just dancing to like Circle of Life and Eye of the Tiger. That is amazing. <laughs> that is that is so on brand. How have I not seen this? This, would, this is incredible. True. Um, me and my uh, group of friends did Dime Began and it was the whole kind of competitions and quizzes and stuff. We had a round where we had to recreate a music video and I did I saw a tiger and dressed up as Joe Exotic and it's yes. one of the most horrific costumes that I've ever done in my life and I will send it to you. If you have a link to it. Yes please please yeah we'll put it in the show notes. Then I'm going to send you the picture of me and generally it was so bad that my partner would not even look at me. It was so <laughs> bad. I came into the room and I was like hey Travis and he was like no. <laughs> no. Turn around, leave. So I say thank you for your paper, which I enjoyed. It's more of a comment than a question, but my my, at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. Abba contend that the history book on the shelf is always repeating itself. As a public historian of sorts, do you think that Abba brought on to something? That is the most nuanced Abba question ever. The history book repeating itself. Of course it is, isn't it? Isn't that what we're always told in history? To learn the mistakes of the past, otherwise history is doomed to repeat itself. And we kind of do that, but in a weird swinging pendulum, I think. Don't you think that we kind of go, a politics is a great example, right? You go from left to right and left to right. And I think kind of wars are saying we never learn, do we? If the human race are just naturally flawed and they're selfish and their quest for power is too too great and difference and their their kind of sense of that everybody they don't tolerate difference and they don't they don't understand each other and i think that long as humankind's around there's going to be war i wish mm. that that was not the case but it just you know it the reason which i do children in war and study children in war is because that is actually such a pressing issue more than it ever was in the 18th and 19th century the levels of child soldiers around the world are just huge child terrorists you know something like the amount of children that are in war is just absolutely phenomenal something like 240 million children are living in like war affected areas and you see that and rarely do you hear from these children in war areas so i think that it's actually getting worse in some aspects so maybe by reflecting back on history that it can shed some light into maybe listening to those voices of children now really mm -hmm. that's kind of my aim with it anyway to try and kind of show that children have always sadly been a part of war and it's getting a lot worse so i think mm -hmm. that abba were onto something from that morbid that morbid point and the history book is repeating itself and are you going to reference abba in the book yes from now I on i mean yeah i think i have to put a footnote to abba for sure certainly a journal article could come out of this couldn't it like deconstructing waterloo by abba is their truth if you want a co-author that will handle the abba side sure 
I have been to the official ABBA museum wow. when I was in Melbourne, of all places. Why is it in Melbourne? Well, it was in 2010. There's one in Stockholm. Yeah, no, they moved all the stuff from Melbourne to Stockholm because that makes sense. But yeah, in 2010, it was in, in Melbourne. Love it. And because I was there for the fencing Commonwealth and I insisted that the entire Scotland women's fencing team joined me at the ABBA Museum because I was captain and I was like, it's team building. You have to come. It was, <laughs> <laughs> they fucking I now it. understand why we used to have ABBA Thursdays in the office. Like, I didn't realise it was such a long tradition of yours that we used to indoctrinate ABBA. Do you ABBA. remember, like, SingStar on the PS2? Oh, I used yeah. to have ABBA SingStar. What are your guys' um, top ABBA songs? Winner Takes It All, oh, obviously. <laughs> this isn't even a question, Emma. I quite like Oulevu. 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 Voulez-vous? Yeah, I'm really bad at lyrics, just so you know. Yeah, mine is When All Is Said and Done. Oh, what a song. That's left field, left field. I love that. Like, at least you didn't say Dancing Queen. I fucking hate Dancing Queen. Like, it's so overplayed. It's so shit. And people. Um, but she's 16. Would she count as, like, a child's narrative? There you go. Mm. Young and sweet. I don't like I Have a Dream. That really great. Mm. I would skip that on Abercold. I find your argument unconvincing. We have a final kind of thing about like a beef of the week or how you'd unfuck the academy, but I want to do beef of the week because what the fuck is with the Mary Wollstonecraft statue? There's a lot to talk about with that. There's a lot to unpack here. Yes, a lot. I mean, (laughs) it's really hard now. Okay, so I've listened all day to these various debates and I just think my immediate like I'm like aesthetically this is really bad like I look at it and I'm like why out of all of the structures that you could possibly present why is it this structure and then I read stuff on Twitter about how that there was two statues wasn't there there was mm-hmm. that proposed one that was designed by a man and a woman they went with the the woman and there was a big debate a couple of years ago about the nature of that it needs to be feminist and all this kind of stuff and there's been a lot of campaigning and all the rest of it so massive context behind it and yet at the end of it i'm still sad about it in the sense and people are saying like it's like the the mash of bodies and it's nuanced and it's about the imagination and there's all these kind of sparking debates i don't know where i posit but all I know is that my brain tells me I hate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw those debates on Twitter as well. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know. But just because you're going for the female sculptor doesn't mean it's better. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. felt, I really feel for the people that really campaigned for it because I just feel like that was great, but it isn't some of the imagery is just not cool. Like, yeah. so, like that sort of they're saying it's like the ideal every woman emerging from whatever. no way how is that an every woman it's no not one's tits are that perky every day is it of of womankind or it's got a very i think difficult message as well there that seems there's there's a bit of a kind of turfiness to that yeah mm-hmm. absolutely it's like oh look this is the woman and oh look look at her genitals on display that is definitely a biological woman just mm-hmm. everyone Definitely. I mean, yeah, now, now that I'm zooming in, like I, I previously when I was looking at this image earlier, just with a sh- the look of like, what on my face? I was like, at least there's like a, a healthy bush. But now there really is, there's quite a lot of detail down there, which yeah. is um, 
What I've taken from it in terms of the positives is just the the fact that it exists in a in a in a broad sense, the fact that it is in an area of London which is needed, and mm-hmm. also there's a kind of sense that I feel like there's a legacy and a history and decisions behind it's not just a thoughtless thing it's Mm -hmm. obviously that's been decisions that have been made behind the scenes but I just feel like the conclusion of it is is poorly executed Mm -hmm. and I personally stand by because sometimes I backtrack on things like Mm. I I think about it a bit more and then I'm like "Mm, well maybe I'm not so vehemently against Mm -hmm. something as I was this morning but like that awful reclaim her name books thing because I remember on Twitter so like initially when I didn't even look at it sort of nuanced it at all I was like huh that's, that's that sounds like a good idea and then when we you looked into it and you realized that it was if maybe queer authors that chose mm-hmm. their names they chose a name for a reason and there was a lot of weird politics and it was just done from this platform of we're going to expose their real names because they deserve it. But it's like, you're taking agency away from the author. So that, I remember having that thought process of, oh, that's a great idea and backtracking. But this one, I keep looking into it and I'm just like, but I I just think it's... I don't get it. Like it just, it just screams to me sort of like, and again, I I haven't done any background research into the the, the statue beyond like a couple of threads on Twitter, which isn't really that much of an insight, Alex, well done. But like, yeah, I hate it. And I think it's, it's just like bad feminism. I feel like, oh, this is not, this is not the one guys. This is not... this is not the way you done Mary bad. Why you did this? Why you do this? Why you got to be this way? Same with you, Louise. I read briefly the whole reclaim her name thing really briefly while I was walking one morning, and I tweeted like, "This is great!" Blah, blah, blah. And then more, the nuances came out, and I was like, "Oh no, no, actually, really, really problematic." But same like with this. I've been reading about nuances all day. I understand more. Like I have a lot of feeling as to why this has happened. Mm. But like you said, like I can't look at that statue and find positives in terms of just the physical statue itself. I find positives in the support for it and all of the surrounding of it. Yeah, the rhetoric around it is really interesting and yeah. I guess that's the point of public art. Mm. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's going to spark debate at least. I do think that in terms of, I think of what we've said before about the actual female form, though, that mm-hmm. maybe that debate doesn't need to happen. No. Like maybe, yeah, you can talk about the smaller piece of art, right? But you don't really want to be talking about human rights, mm-hmm. you know, and how that that's projected in some kind of memorial that's going to be yeah. there. I mean, you've got the whole thing in Wollstonecraft about how women are caged by their gender and stuff, and you're just like, so we're gonna just encapsulate it with the statue. I can see, like, if you wanted to be really wanky about it, which I'm gonna be, I can see there being value in the statue being not just strictly of Mary Wollstonecraft and just representing what we think she looked like. Like, I, I can see value because that's how statues have been built for years and years and years. And obviously the patriarchy is bad and we want to kind of reinvent how we look at art and how we look at female figures and not necessarily give them the same treatment that we've given to hundreds and hundreds of white men all across the country. Maybe we want to give them some sort of different form of representation. So I'm not against an abstract statue. And also, I think Wollstonecraft is a figure that really there should have been a fucking statue already like come the fuck on but I just think that in its abstraction there's some fucked up mixed messages there mm-hmm. I mean I also think it's ugly but even taking away from that just personal visceral oh trying to read into it beyond its 
assault on my eyes. It's just even the background of it, right? In terms of this is supposed to be filling uh, like a glaring absence of female figures in London's kind of sculptural landscape. The fact that 90% of all statues in London are of men. Most of those men are probably clothed. I mean, I think that's the thing as well in terms of like, if you want to put a female figure into the public discourse in such a kind of visual way, like, does it have to be another nude one? Like, does she have to have her tits out to be making a point about Wilson Cross's like proto-feminism? No. But yeah, the ideology as an abstract figure, for sure, like her ideas are so important. But no, I can't get on board with it. I've decided. (laughs) Okay, so you may have guessed that because we weren't being interrupted by some actual erudite thoughts, Emma's internet dropped out. So it left me and Alex just chatting into the void for a while, which leaves me to give you some plugs for Emma's work. So you can find Emma on Twitter at Emma Butcher underscore, or you can look up her monograph, The Brontes and War, or... You can look at our Twitter and see the picture of her dressed as Joe Exotic. Also, if you're interested in saving the Bronte Parsonage, you can Google their Just Giving account and we'd appreciate any donations to save this wonderful museum. We've been Lol My Praxis. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. A five-star output deserves five-star rating. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan, Dr. Amy Bromley. You can get in touch with us at lawmypraxis at gmail.com or at lawmypraxis on Twitter. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter B and the number 1792. Our shape this week, abstract naked woman. Remember to tell all your friends with apologies for cross-posting. Please do not reply all. Bye. Coming up on Law My Praxis. Even the vegetables don't like him. We are joined by Dr. Pete Orford to discuss an underrepresented white male Christmas author. <laughs> <laughs>